You're listening to audio from Living Grace Church in Tyler, Texas. To find out more about Living Grace, go to livinggracetexas.org. Psalm 41, let's read it and then we will kind of break it down, talk about it. I, uh, the last time I preached was on Psalm 23 and I said I was going to talk about the whole psalm and then afterward, Jamie, my wife, was like, uh, you only talked about really one verse. And so today it is focused a little bit more on one verse, but we are going to talk about all the psalm, but once again, probably focus on one verse. It's so good. All right, so let's read Psalm 41 and then we'll dive in. It says this, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sick bed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. 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 So here in this passage, we must remember, right, context is key when studying the scriptures. And so we know that most, a lot of the Psalms were written by King David, but not every Psalm was written by David. But this one in particular was written by David. Uh, and so when, when he did write this, we, we can't be 100% for certain, but we do know that it was probably later in his life, way after he had become king, because there's some clues in here that help us to see that. He lived long enough to have enemies wish he were dead, and he committed some sort of big public sin, right? So he lived long enough to know that people were, were against him, and we know that as, we, as you look in this, the life of David, that many people did not want David to be king, and so they tried to kill him. There was the big public sin, maybe it was the committing adultery with Bathsheba whenever everybody found out, because many people don't know this, but it's even in my notes, but Uriah, I've told you this before, but Uriah, whom David, who was Bathsheba's husband, whom David sent to the front lines to be killed because he had sex with her and got her pregnant and all this stuff, Uriah was actually one of his closest friends. He wasn't just somebody that was a nobody to David. It was... David knew who Bathsheba was. He knew whose wife it was. And so maybe it was this big public sin where David cries out, right, where he says, heal me for I have sinned against you. Because he had to have been king because his enemies, though they hate him, had to submit to him even with empty words of flattery, which we see in verse 6, right? When one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. 
Verse 9 reveals that though David was in power, someone close betrayed him. Probably it was Absalom, his son. Yet in the end, he didn't lose everything, but the Lord upheld him, which we see in verses 11 through 12, right? That his enemy did not triumph over him. He was still king of Israel. And so that's why at the end of his life, he concludes with, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So David wrote this as an older king, right? And though many of his troubles in his life, some because of his choices, some because of others' choices, he went through these troubles, but yet he was able to conclude that it was the Lord, was st- he was still blessed because of the Lord. And so I tell you this because as we read this passage, is that you have to see that though David wrote it, and it meant something at that time to David, Psalm 41, when he wrote it, when he was king later in his life, and he was remembering God's goodness and faithfulness to him, it's important to know that was a psalm of David for David's life. But yet, we also see, as you see in all of Scripture, is that there are shadows of Jesus in the life of Jesus in many parts of the Bible, right? So shadow meaning, right, you see, if you're standing in the sun, you see your shadow, and that shadow looks like you kind of has you know is your you know depending on how you stand you can see your nose you can see your hair you can see different parts but it's not the real you it's just a small part of you it's a resemblance of the real you in the same way is that when you read through scriptures there is a shadow of Jesus all throughout the Bible in what we'll see here in Psalm 41 and so though it is written for David it is applicable to believers today But once again, there's this point of view of Jesus. And so let's start with verse 1, and it says this, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. And so if we focus on this first part of this verse, right, is that it reminds us, it should remind you of the famous Sermon on the Mount, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the meek. And so we see that there is this same idea is that blessed is the one who considers the poor because in that day of trouble or in the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him, right? In Matthew 5, 7, we can remember, it says, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy, Jesus made it clear that the poor will always be with us. And if you look throughout Scripture, you can see how much God, our Father, has a heart for the poor, the powerless, the widow, the orphan, those who are without, without money, without shelter, without a husband, without a family. You see that God's heart is for those without That he is not a God who leaves us in our lack, leaves us empty, but instead gives us what we need. And he is a God who loves those who are without. Why? Because in their lack, in our lack, God provides. God gets to be the good father. He not only provides physical needs, but spiritual as well. He becomes our father, right? He becomes our source of provision. He becomes our shelter in the storm. With God, we have everything we ever need, which echoes what we learned in Psalm 23 a couple of weeks ago, which was, right, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I have everything that I need. And so let's read some passages of how God cares for the poor. This will be up on the screen, and I'll read them. We won't pause on a lot of them, but I just want to read these to kind of give you an idea of what the Bible says from Old Testament to New Testament about God's heart for the poor. Proverbs nineteen seventeen: whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. 
Proverbs 14, 31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Deuteronomy 15, 11. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to the brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Proverbs 21, 13. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 8. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Psalm 140, verse 12. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and it will execute justice or and will execute justice for the needy. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 1 John 3.17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And lastly, Matthew 5, verse 42 Give to the one, Jesus says this, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So we could see very clearly, we can all obviously agree that as Christians, we should remember the poor, those without, those in need, those who can't speak up for themselves, those who are powerless where they are. But what holds us back from these commands? What holds us back from obeying them? What keeps us from these verses describing our daily lives? Or let me ask this. When's the last time you made an intentional effort to help the poor? Not twice a year, not once a year, but intentionally out of your way to go help someone in need, lacking who doesn't have who to help the poor, not the homeless who gets random change, but rather someone who is without, someone who needs mercy shown to them, you intentionally go out of your way, sacrifice your money, your time, and give away potentially your best thing for this person. When's the last time this is what was described of you, of believers in general? When's the last time you did that? What has kept you from that? Maybe it's the, you know, usually it's the normal, I don't know what they'll do with that money. Okay. But what if you brought them food instead? What if you help pay someone's light bill who you know is living paycheck to paycheck and in lots of credit card debt? What if instead of handing over money, you buy something with it for the person? Or another objection could be, if I give too much, I won't have anything left for me. But deep down, this excuse says, I don't think God can keep up with this giving that you're talking about. I don't think he'll provide. Now, let me preface, right? So that you reveal the excess that is there in your life so that you can help those in need. See the difference? I'm not saying don't 
don't be, just give away everything. No, I'm saying you live so wise with your time. You understand that every day, every dollar, every minute, every single moment is a gift from God, that you're stewarding that so well so that when somebody is in need, you are ready to step up to the plates. See, there's a difference. Why? Because we all live in excess. We all have excess in our lives. Acts 2, through 45 describes the early church and what they look like. And verse 44 says this, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I think I've asked this before, because I've talked about this before, but have you sold something so that you can help someone? Have you lived so wisely with your finances that when you hear someone struggling, you can take care of it right then and there without a second's pause? Think about this. What if God, right? What if, what if God has given all the money that you and I need right now, need, not want, need in our life, and he has it ready and it's there, it's been given so that we can give it to somebody else or we can have it, but the reason we don't have it is because we, like others, aren't generous people and don't live wisely with what God has given us. Hear me out. I'm not talking about dropping off more money here at the church. It's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you need to drop more here. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is to help those in need here at the church and those around you to help the poor, to be able to be merciful, is that it requires us to live not like the world around us, but instead to live as if this isn't our end-all world and this isn't the kingdom that we're trying to build and we are aliens and strangers to this world or do we just buy into the norm because we forget that we are not promised tomorrow and everything given to us is for us to steward for those in need, for those who lack. Why? Because blessed are the merciful isn't something we just aspire, but it should describe every believer. It should describe you. Blessed are the poor in spirit should describe you. It's like instead of all the dominoes continuing to fall in place, we out of our selfishness, In lack of good stewardship, we pull ourselves out of the way, out of the equation. You see, people always want to be like the early church, but could a contributing factor of the church today not looking like the early church be that we have become so focused on our little kingdom of our life that we forget the God of God's kingdom at large? What I'm getting at is, in your life as a believer, do you live as an empty pipe, a conduit, every moment of your day, not just finances, but every moment of every single day, do you live in this place of God, how can I serve you today? How can I serve you with my time? How can I serve you with my finances? How can I serve you with my excess? God, how can I serve you today? Use me. But many a times, right, instead is that we are not empty pipes, conduit ready to flow, but instead our own little kingdom stops up the pipe and those in need never get what they actually need from us that we were supposed to. But then God uses somebody else and then we miss out on the entire being a part of the journey and the process of being God's hands and feet and being able to bless other people. Why? Because we, our eyes, everything was focused on us. 
recently I served on jury duty this past week. Very, very fascinating thing. First time I did that. Uh, but I got picked. And so for those who don't know, when you first get served jury duty or you have to show up, you get $6. Everybody's like, duh. I didn't know this. Okay. It's first time. But then if you get picked for jury duty, you get 40 bucks, right? It's pretty nice. Uh, so you show up where I get picked. We show up in this little tiny room. There's 12 of us there. Uh, technically 13. It was weird. It was a uh, whatever. We called him the mole. I called him the mole. Nobody thought it was funny, but I swore he was a mole. But anyways, I, you get paid 40 bucks. So we're standing in this tiny room. It's like maybe, I mean, super small, maybe from like here to the end of that carpet. And there's like 12 of us in there. And so the bailiff walks up and she's got this huge wad of cash. So we're getting ready for trial that morning. And so she's got, you know, what, $510, no, $20 there in her hand. And so there's no way she can walk up, hand it. And so she hands me mine and then there's nowhere to walk. So then she hands all the money to this guy, right? Which then he passes the money around. So he gets a 40, pass the 40, get the 40, pass the 40, get the 40, pass the 40. And so it goes all the way around, right? Everybody gets their money. Everybody's happy. Um, but, but imagine, imagine if every time that she got, gave him the 40, he was like, put it in his pocket, just grabbed it, put it in his pocket, grabbed it, put it in his pocket. I mean, like, it's silly, right? But imagine he's standing there in front of all of us and we're looking at him like, bro, that's our money that you're trying to put in your pocket. There's four constables standing right there. And it's like, where are you going to go with that money? But of course, it didn't happen because that'd be foolish. Why? Because there's cops right there too, because he couldn't get very far and it's supposed to be for everybody else. And three, I mean, it was just, it would be absolutely foolish and it was never going to happen, right? But yet at the same time, it reminded me is that how many times does God give us something that's supposed to be for the person next to us and the person down the way and the person down the street and the person two months from now? And we're supposed to be handing it, conduit flowing, but yet many a times we take that and we put it right in our pocket. And as foolish as that would be to look at that person, we do the very same thing with our time, our money, our resources that are meant to be serving those around us, those in need. I touched on this earlier, but the goal isn't to live foolish with our resources, but wisely. See, many people aren't generous, not because they don't want to, but because we don't live below our means. We really don't live. Americans in general do not live below our means. We're always competing. We're always trying to get the newest thing. And so to live below, to live below their means, one would have to go to Psalm 23 and be able to say, which I said earlier, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing or I have everything that I need. And this is why the early church can be described as they saw the need and they gave and they sold and they gave and they sold because they saw that they had everything that they needed in Christ who just saved them. They were brought from death to life. And now they were, if there was somebody in need, it was easy because they had everything that they needed in Christ. So they sold and they gave away. They sold and they gave away. There wasn't this idea of why, because they were focused on the future eternal kingdom of God, not their future eternal you know, earthly kingdom that they were focusing on, or most of us focus on later. They didn't lack because they saw God's blessings towards them as for them and someone around them. So let me ask you this. Do you see your salary or pay increases or a bonus as a reason to increase your standard of living or to bless someone around you? or to set aside so you can bless someone around you in the future. When you get a raise, 
when you get a salary raise, when you get a bonus, is your first thought what you're going to do for you? Or is it, Lord, what am I supposed to do with this money? I mentioned this for many weeks ago. But really, like, is that the way that we see? Which is abnormal, right? It's not normal. Nobody thinks that way. But yet we as Christians are supposed to be not normal, not of this world. I know generosity is a difficult subject. But I, I want us to be a church as, you know, when Paul was in the New Testament, he was going around and, and he wrote the book of Galatians. One of this, what spurred this whole sermon a few weeks ago in my mind started running was this passage that just said that Paul, they asked me to remember the poor, which I was, Paul was saying, the, the elders asked him to remember the poor. And then I sat there and I was like, man, when I think of living grace, can somebody say living grace remembers the poor can somebody say this church remembers the poor and that's what defines us and like this was one of the biggest things the elders were focused on to tell paul to do was hey as you're going out as you're preaching the good news as you're going and planting churches remember the poor and paul says but that was the very thing i was focusing on and so, you know, as a confession, it's like, man, I have not led this church in a place to get us to the point where we could be known as those who remember the poor, who remember those without, who remember to be like our father and see those in need, not just poor of those under the bridge or hanging out downtown the library, you know, trying to just chill in, not the homeless, not just the homeless, but rather those who have low income, those who are dealing with PTSD, those who have a rough, like all, like there's so many nonprofits here that are helping, but it's like, what have I done to help lead this church to get to the point where that is something that we are known for is helping those without. And so right now we have people finding, trying to find local ministries so that we can be that church. And it's a process. And so I apologize for not getting us there sooner, but I know that some things take time. You see, we will get there, I believe it, but it takes each of us individually living in a way that we will be ready when the need arises. You see, we can be a church and I can talk about it and we can find the partners, but if individually we are not living as those who want to show mercy to those who need to be shown mercy, who live below our means, who don't live in excess, but set aside the excess so that we can bless those in need, if that's not us individually, then corporately it's not going to be us, right? You, you see that? It's not just going to happen. It's not like the church is sitting on tens of thousands of dollars that we can just drop somewhere. It's not... That's not how it is. No, it's, hey, when the need arises, will we actually be ready? Will our hearts be ready? Will we be ready to serve those in need and to give to those in need? And so what is the motivation? What should be the motivation for all this? Two things. One, understanding who we are. And number two, Jesus. So who are we? Well, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, we are the poor, right? Some of us physically, we are poor. Some of us are poor and live below right, poverty level and are living, you know, struggling, needing stuff, right? Some, that describes statistics to say that is some of us in here. But spiritually, all of us are poor, should be poor in spirit, meaning this is that we 
to be poor is to lack. Because we were poor, right? In the same way we are poor, but not poor. Because in Christ, we have everything we need. And all the spiritual blessings and spiritual riches are ours in Christ Jesus. And the reason the poor inherit the kingdom is because we cannot come to Jesus having everything all together and then just adding him into our lives. No, we must come to him daily saying, God, I need you. I need you when I drive. I need you when I'm talking with my husband or wife. I need you when I'm dealing with my kids. I need you when I'm dealing with my family members. I need you when I go to work. I need you as I'm dealing with this business stuff. I need you in all these moments because we are supposed to be the poor in spirit saying, God, I need you. I can't do this without you. I lack everything with, I can have the whole world, but not Jesus and not have anything. And I can have the whole, and, but I can have nothing of the world and be as poor physically according to standards of America and yet have everything that we need. Why? Because we're living for an eternal kingdom and every spiritual blessing, every, every riches in the heavens are ours already. We live knowing that in our need, he always supplies. See, really, I believe one of the main reasons we don't remember the poor in general is because we don't remember who we were without Christ. We tend to forget that without Christ, we were aimless that we, though we thought we had everything figured out, yet we lacked everything without Christ. We often lack trust in God, not thinking he will provide if we give. We also, if we were honest, don't live below our means, right? That's not a normal thing. Nobody teaches that. Nobody talks about that. Nobody urges that to live. No, right? That's not a thing. The idea of saving up and getting what we actually need is rare in society. Rather, the norm is just to put everything on a payment plan nowadays. The norm is just to put everything on the credit card and just pay it off, you know, however much money you pay extra. It doesn't matter why, because we need it in the moment. But ultimately, it's because we don't find our wholeness in Christ and see that he really has given us everything that we need already. Someone's not coming back after I said that one. I don't mind. Here's what I am not saying today. I'm not saying don't take care of your family or necessary bills. That's not what I'm saying. I'm also not saying don't save for the future or be wise with money. And then lastly, I'm not saying that some are excused from this idea of being merciful and showing mercy to those who lack and being generous because none of us are. It may take months of catching up, working side jobs, but we all have excess and live in excess we all have spending habits that show we have lost sight of the fact that this isn't our home. See, God loves the poor, those without, those who can't defend themselves, and he uses his children to help them. Because when those people get help, they thank God. And then we turn around and thank him for using us as well. And so God gets all of the glory in this moment. Second motivation is Jesus. So we go back to Psalm 41. And we read, if we start in verse 5, we can find Jesus in there. And so if you're trying to write, where's Waldo? Try to find Jesus. You can, you'll see it in a second, if not, if you haven't already. But verse 5, my enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. 
They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. You see, I believe this psalm is ultimately about Jesus. His enemies wanted him dead. The Pharisees uttered empty words of praise, right? The, the, the Isaiah talks about the words, in, you know, people's hearts were not in it, and though they praised him out loud, while deep in their hearts they wanted Jesus killed. They imagined the worst for him, but when you go to verse 9, right, who was Jesus' close friend who ate the bread and lifted his heel against him? It was Judas. Then who raised Jesus from the dead? God the Father. For Romans 8, 11 tells us, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Acts 2.24 says, But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see, Christ became like us without. He became, so, he became poor so that we can become rich, but not in material wealth, but in eternal wealth. We were dead in our sins, yet Christ put an end to the fear and agony of death, so we no longer have to fear it, but embrace it knowing this isn't our final destination, knowing that death is simply a vehicle to get us face-to-face with Christ. We know that when we die, we will come back to life, but in new bodies. Ones that don't have any issues and pain and sorrow will cease to exist. Christ was willing to be betrayed so that he might show his everlasting loyalty to us. That in our faithlessness, he remains faithful. We are generous because he has been so generous to us. When you embrace that with Jesus, you have everything you need, you will be like your father in heaven who loves the widow, the poor, the homeless, the orphan, those who need to be defended, and doesn't just love them, but goes far out of his way to help them, right? The one sheep that was lost. You can also be, you can also be reminded of the good Samaritan, the story in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. We'll read this. It says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. 
Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. You see, you have to understand that this Jericho road, traveling this road was a dangerous road. It'd be the same way as imagine walking walking through downtown Tyler or somewhere, some modern city where it's late at night and there's no, and it's just robbers and, you know, just a bad part of town. Imagine walking through that part. But instead of streetlights, it was darkness. Instead of the occasional cop that would drive by or the, you know, the random passerby, there was nobody. It was, it was a very dangerous place. Think of Skid Row. And so the priest and the Levite didn't want to become involved in this man's needs. They walk upon him and they see this guy probably crying out, bleeding, but they didn't want to deal with him. Why? Because they're probably afraid of those that, that might happen to them or they maybe thought that they had a higher calling. But we would probably do the same thing, right? Is that if you're walking downtown in the square at night, you just go catch a show or you eat or you go look at something downtown, you're walking past the art alley or towards the, uh, the library and then you see somebody, you know, crying out, hey, help me, help me. You're probably going to quicken your step a little bit and probably going to act like you got a phone call and you're probably going to want to keep going. Or you're going to say, no, 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 let me, I'm going to call for help. You stay there. Don't worry about it. You know, you're in your nice clothes. You can't get dirty. This guy's all bloody. Like, hey, I'm going to call somebody. Just stay right there. Like he can go anywhere, you know, but you stay right there and I'll call for some help. But yet the Samaritan had compassion because though this wounded man was an enemy, His compassion didn't let him run away to call the authorities. It pushed him to provide friendship, emergency medical help, transportation, a lot of money, and then he even came back to check on the guy. The Samaritan risked risked his safety, set aside his schedule, became dirty and bloody with the person who was a different race and a different color and social class. And yet we see that in Matthew 24, Jesus shows us, it shows us Jesus judging people on the basis of their ministry to the hungry, the naked, the homeless, the sick, and the imprisoned. Right? It says this, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see, Jesus is saying, when you show mercy to those who need to be shown mercy, you're ultimately showing it to me. To Jesus himself. 
For if it was Jesus on the side of the road, we would drop everything. If it was Jesus who needed something, we would drop everything. If it was Jesus who needed help, Jesus who needed a ride, Jesus who needed whatever, fill in the blank, we wouldn't pause for a second. And yet Jesus says, when you show it to somebody else, you're ultimately showing it to me. We wouldn't disagree that Jesus wants us to help the poor, for even the law expert in this didn't deny it, but asked, who is my neighbor? And which some of you are probably asking, but who should I really show it to? Tim Keller just passed away. He was a pastor in New York City. He wrote a great book called Ministries of Mercy. And he commented on this passage and he said this, we can see him as the typical Westerner saying, the one who asks, who is my neighbor? Who really saying, hey, who should I really be helping? And their excuse being, oh, come on now, Lord, let's be reasonable. We know we are to help out the unfortunate, but just how far do we have to go? You don't mean we should pour ourselves out for anyone. Doesn't charity begin at home? You don't mean every Christian must get deeply involved with hurting and needy people. I'm not very good in that kind of work. It's not my gift. I have a busy schedule and I'm, all, and I'm extremely active in my church. Isn't this sort of thing the government's job anyway? I barely have enough money for myself. Aren't many of the poor simply irresponsible? Aren't those without just simply irresponsible and that's their own fault and they're reaping and sowing what they, own, what they did? He continues and he says, when he shows us the indifferent priest and Levite, Jesus unmasks the many false limits that religious people put on the command to love your neighbor. Jesus shows us that the neighbor to whom we must render aid is anyone at all in need, even an enemy. Jesus knew that all the excuses must disappear. And what's settled, right, you shake a, a jar of dirty water, and when everything settles, what's left for you to wrestle with today and me to wrestle with is, are we going to obey where are we going to disobey Jesus? Are we going to obey or disobey the very end of his teaching, which he said what? Go and do likewise. Who is my neighbor? Who showed mercy? Now go and do likewise. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. You see, we will be delivered on that day of judgment, not because we did good things, not because you became the greatest, you became like the next Mother Teresa, and you just sold everything and started helping everybody in need. That's not going to get you in heaven. No, no, no. What gets us delivered on that day of judgment was that Christ saved us. That we were poor, dead in our sins and without, and yet he came and he took the first step and he was the greater Samaritan and he was the greater shepherd who went for the lost sheep and he came after us. He didn't wait for us to come to him. He chased us. So it's because Christ saved us and the Holy Spirit lives in us and then if the Holy Spirit is within us, he puts the desire within us to do for others and to others 
what he has done for us, which was this, what? Shown mercy. Now we must go and do likewise. Told you it was one verse. I tried. I wanted to add more, but I was like, I already went 40 minutes or 30 minutes. I can't. But if you can stand with me this morning. Being a a pastor for, lead pastor for just, you know, almost two years now, learned a lot. One of the things I've learned is is really just kind of taking the Lord's timing. And, you know, when I look at the church and kind of seeing where we are and where I, you know, want it to be, where I want personally where I want to be is I always have to be reminded, like, I've got to walk at the Lord's pace and timing. And this is not, this teaching, right? Like my, my job is to serve you. My job is to equip you. My job is to care more for your soul than your happiness. And so I know that these teachings of, you know, when I you know, talk about money, talk about generosity, talk about not thinking about yourself are hard things. Why? Because deep down, right, it's our pride is what's getting attacked. Our selfishness is what's getting exposed. But I promise you this, man, when your life becomes about everybody else but you and God's kingdom and not yours, you find such joy. You find such wholeness and purpose to be able to see somebody in need and you get to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Like how amazing is that that God wants to use me and you to bless his children, to bless those in need who may never step foot in this church. You've heard me say a million times, I could care less whether the people you help in need come to this church. That's not my goal. The goal is for you to become more like Christ and the kingdom at large grows grows bigger and bigger because people understand that Jesus really does love them. Because when we help those in need individually, and we're going out of our way individually, and we're setting aside resources individually, then collectively we truly become the church that can be described as the one who lacks nothing, who remembers the poor because they are poor. Like to be called poor in spirit, sometimes it can feel like a, ooh, I don't want to be called poor. Like I've made it. I've got the job. I've got the, I got the house. I've got the car. Don't you call me poor. But yet Jesus is trying to totally flip it upside down and say, no, I need you to be poor. So you see that without me, you have nothing. That without me, it doesn't matter what else you buy, it's the newest thing, you have nothing. That you have nothing without me. Why? Because he created us. He knows us. He knows we will only find wholeness and purpose and truth and joy in him and him alone. So at the end of every service, we have a time to respond to the message. And so there's multiple ways to respond. But one of the ways is by prayer that you would just wrestle in your heart and say, God, do I, man, like help me to remember the poor. Help me. Where do I live in excess so that I can give that to somebody else? Lord, how do I need to restructure my life so that I can be known as the one who is merciful And that it can be evident that I am your child because of this desire that you put within me. You're just wrestling with these things. So we want to give you a moment to pray before we 
go and lunch and say hi to people and, and you just forget about everything all together. But then the second thing is we eat communion or we eat to partake of communion. We eat the bread and drink the juice to be reminded that right in, in your lack of mercy, in your lack of not living poor in spirit, in your lack of not being compa- or not showing compassion to those around you, yet Christ paid for that sin. And so we get to drink that juice knowing that he right lived he was willing to be betrayed so that he can show his loyalty to us and so his body was broken and so that's why we eat the bread so we can be reminded that he did everything that we couldn't do and then even when we don't even live like we're supposed to in compassion to those around us merciful to those around us yet he paid for those sins as well there on the cross and so we drink the juice to say thank you so that we can have to start anew, essentially. Thanks for listening to today's sermon. We hope this helps you on your journey to glorify God by enjoying Him and making disciples who make disciples.